So many attempted blockbuster films have crashed against the rocks of indifferent audiences. But what a temptation. If you can come up with a franchise film universe that really connects with moviegoers, you can write your own ticket. George Lucas is literally a billionaire because he got frustrated with John Milius while they were working on the script for Apocalypse Now, and he went off and wrote his own movie where the North Vietnamese were the good guys and the United States was represented by a bunch of evil dudes with a giant planet-exploding space station because he decided to make his Vietnam War film a pastiche of Flash Gordon. Four billion dollars that got him. So you can see why people keep trying to do this, why James Cameron has 11 sequels to Avatar in the works, why everything is a reboot of a comic book or a fantasy novel or a sci-fi. Media companies like Prospectors heading west in a perpetual 1849 are always looking for that next film universe that can transmute art into gold. You sink a few million bucks into a project, you get a few billion back. Financing movies within a beloved film universe, once it's established, becomes a much safer bet. I think most of the films that have borne the Star Wars brand are films that would have failed spectacularly at the box office if they'd had no antecedents. And that's the temptation that gave us today's film, adapted from the Frank Herbert novel of the same name. It's a film I would argue is no more strange than Star Wars where Star Wars has robed mystics who move objects with telekinesis and shoot lightning out of their fingers. Today's film is about throne room intrigue over control of a drug used by a bunch of mind-reading priestesses and damp leather daddy starship navigators who get high so much that their bodies change shape. And like Star Wars, it's an allegory about imperialism and real war. Left it just enough of a remove that audiences can safely enjoy the feeling of watching something of grand import without being forced into any discomforting reflection on what it might be saying about their own country's foreign policy. It's equal parts science fiction escapism, male power fantasy, pimple popping voyeurism, and beautiful car crash we can't look away from. This is a setting that is surely rich enough to be one of our cinematic universes, and I'm glad Hollywood keeps trying to make it one every couple of decades. One of these days, a filmmaker might convince the film-going public that they should care that Padishah Emperor Shaddam IV is masterminding a plot to let House Atreides and House Harkonnen destroy each other in order to prevent either from becoming too powerful within the Landsrad, and that this plot simultaneously jeopardizes the production of the Spice Melange while also bringing Paul Atreides into contact with the Spice, the Fremen, and eventually the Water of Life, his consumption of which proves that he is the Kwisatz Haderach. I'll miss the sea, but a person needs new experiences. They jar something deep inside, allowing him to grow. Without change, something sleeps inside us and seldom awakens. The sleeper must awaken. Today on Friendly Fire, Dune. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that has worm sign the likes of which even God hasn't seen. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. I'm John Roderick. Let me into your podcast. <laughs> who, who is that? Oh no! He's John Hodgman. I'm using the voice to force myself into your podcast. We can't possibly resist. <laughs> your name is a weapon. <laughs> My name is a killing word. 
Yeah. <laughs> my, 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 my name isn't a killing word. My name is a cuddle word. Come on, everyone. Knows. I'm gonna I'm gonna vocalize my <laughs> internal dialogue. I wonder if John Hodgman is in this. <laughs> Could he be the one? I am very excited to be here because I am a huge fan of Dune the book and Dune the movie by David Lynch. I think the idea to invite you on came up because uh I, I heard you talking about Dune on an episode of Judge John Hodgman. Yes. And, uh, I, think you, I think you had threatened to go off on a rant about the trailer for the new Dune, which, as of this recording, hasn't been released yet. But, but it's, uh, not, it's not a rant. If you want my opinion on the trailer for the new Dune, I'll give it to you at the end of this episode. Oh, <laughs> tease. <laughs> they were wow. going to call the uh, the adult film version of Dune, This Ain't Dune, but then they decided to call it New Dune and uh, <laughs> made it far more popular. Look, I will begin this episode with a short reading. You cannot deny me. I'm using the voice. <laughs> this is a short reading, which you may cut out if you wish, but do so at your peril. <laughs> like the movie Dune, there will be various versions of... <laughs> various cuts of this particular yeah. episode. Should we go back and re-record our uh, our intros to ourselves as Alan Smithy, just in case ah, we disavow you, this? You got there before I did. <laughs> Coincidentally, know. I'm uh, I'm feeling uh, pangs of diarrhea during production, so <laughs> consistent with the production of Dune. Also, so this is a, just a very short reading from my book. More information than you require from a from a section called. Evidence for Alien Life, in which I describe various uncanny, impossible things that happened to me in my growing up that were so impossible to imagine that I could only imagine they were screen memories for alien abduction. When did this become a buzz marketing platform for Hodgman's book from five years ago? <laughs> Ten years ago. Have you ever heard Hodgman do a, do a guest spot on a podcast before, John? This is what happens. <laughs> Brookline, Massachusetts, 1984. In 1984, I went to see the movie Dune, and a girl spoke to me. I realize this seems impossible, but I tell you, it is absolutely true. It was opening night, and I was there with my friend Tim McGonagall, who sat on my left. On my right sat the girl. She was wearing a blue jean jacket and had long curly hair. Her ankle was bandaged, nothing serious, probably just a sprain, but she had a pair of wooden crutches with her. She was tall. I was in eighth grade at the time, and I would guess she was a sophomore in high school, but I didn't know for sure because she was not from my town, and I didn't know her name, and I never will. She was there with an older woman, presumably her mother, and they were talking about Dune, the book. They were big fans of the original book, and they were discussing this fact. They agreed that their favorite characters were the giant sandworms. And that's... <laughs> and that. <laughs> True story. It's a true story. And that's when wow. it got really weird. A little before the lights went down, the girl turned to me and asked if I was looking forward to the movie. I didn't know what to say. Partially, I was embarrassed. I had never read the novel Dune at that point. I was merely a connoisseur of movies featuring desert planets, as I still am. But more, she asked me this question apropos of nothing. It was as if... She just wanted to talk to me. <laughs> she waited. Eventually I answered, yes. I'm not sure I even moved my head from the screen. The lights went down and the film began. If I must remind you, this was the David Lynch version of Dune in which everyone was sexy and deformed at the same time. 
You may recall that it ends with Sting trying to sex knife Kyle McLaughlin to death, but Kyle McLaughlin sex knifes him instead and then makes it rain. I recall being particularly impressed when the third stage guild navigator appeared at the beginning of the film. This was kind of a giant mutant fetus that lived in a tank, floating forever in the orange cloud of the psychedelic drug known as melange that gave it the power to bend space and time. This creature could never touch or speak directly to another person. It had become so physically, mentally, and sexily deformed by its isolation that it could only communicate with the outside world through some kind of old-timey radio. As you might imagine, I was fascinated with this creature. I wanted to be it! Far more than the giant sandworms, which were fine, but I mean, your favorite character? Come on. When the movie ended, I noticed that everyone was very happy to get out of the theater as quickly as possible. Except the girl. She seemed to slow down as we walked out. She seemed to match my pace. Maybe it was the crutches. But for a moment, it seemed like she might even talk to me again. (laughs) It all seems so ridiculous now that I describe it. I can only conclude that it must have been what alien abductees call a screen memory. A false memory the brain concocts to cover up the trauma, say, of being kidnapped and taken to a pyramid for sex, or possibly knife sex. Bearing that in mind, I sure am glad I kept walking. I sure am glad I never spoke to her or saw her ever again. The end. End of reading. Imagine the Shai Halud being your favorite character. The worms are cool. The worms are cool. They're cool, but they don't really get much development. You know? <laughs> they don't have a lot of dialogue. John, as a displaced Washingtonian down in California, I am still confronted by someone wanting to talk to me for some reason that I can't understand. <laughs> right. Yeah, you understand. You're an, you're, yeah. But you're, you're a grown-up, and you live in a place that, like many northern climes, talking to another person is an act of aggression. It is, and, and mm-hmm. to move from a place where that is known as an aggression to Los Angeles, where it is not, has been an adjustment for me. I, I want to establish just a point of order going yeah. going into this episode. Are we honestly going to... Uh, try to refer to all these characters by their completely improvised names. Like, are you going to say that Shadow Mapes <laughs> and Furman uh, Garbage Snarts? And st- are you really going to talk about them like they're, they're people I should know who they are? <laughs> Furman Garbage Snarts is my guy. So, yes. Because the, the names, the place names, the planet no, names. Garbage Schmartz is the leader of a siege, a siege of Fremen. That's not his name. And also, that's his public name, not Speaking the Speaking of someone name who loves the Lord of the Rings and loves made up names and will talk all day in made up languages, every single name and word in this, in this movie feels like. First of all, you only hear it once because someone says Flurban Garbenschnarts and, and we're supposed to know what that mm-hmm. is and then we never hear it again. And also they're just they're the most made up names I've right. ever heard of in the in the history of made up names. Even the one name that is not Mershtingutrushcht is sounds dumb and made up. Duncan Idaho. It's like, really? Why is Duncan Idaho in, in this space epic? I love Duncan Idaho exists in this movie to be hugged and then killed. Yeah. That's all we know about him. I, I remember the novel as being pretty similar in that way where they just really like give you barely anything to hang your hat on in terms of context. Like John Hodgman, you, you mentioned liking desert planet movies and i assume that's an allusion to star wars like in star wars luke doesn't know anything about the world he's moving into and so 
when people explain stuff to him, you can kind of gain access to that. And I think that there's an opportunity with uh, <laughs> with the Quizot's oh Hatterack in uh, <laughs> that he is moving into a new world and a new godhood and people could be like helping him hmm. understand that. But this movie makes almost no attempt. <laughs> Wait a minute, almost no attempt? Are, are you excluding the 40 minutes of explication at the beginning of the film where a, where a female narr- yeah. narrator that we never see again, like voiceovers, basically like reads the Simmerillion to us? Look, a beginning is a delicate time. We've obviously blown this one. It just occurred to me that Luke is a character that leaves a life of moisture farming, but... Kyle McLaughlin's character he becomes a moisture farmer in a way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, and with that, our first film paper has been written. <laughs> a beginning is a very delicate time. Know then that it is the year 10,191. A kid, a child, a 15-year-old named Paul Atreides, who goes with his father, the Duke of Caladan, the big water planet and they go to the desert planet because the emperor tells them to do it and the desert planet is the source of this uh drug this hallucinogenic uh like super shrooms except it's a spice called melange and the spice gives you powers of precognition and the spice um, mutates you and the spice is the only way in this future society ten thousand years after our own that you can move through space uh, uh at faster than light speeds by folding space and predicting where you're going to come out and to and therefore it is the most important substance in the universe it's only found on the desert planet of Arrakis known as Dune wait a minute if they you're get gonna, sent if, there to take over from your ancient <laughs> let enemies let me just ask one question one <laughs> question just a little, I'm trying to bring just people one up question which Go. is if you're going to invent four the names of 400 planets and 50 characters why <laughs> do you call the central plot device the spice by the name of, of why do you just name it after a scented candle like, why doesn't the, the spice is literally called melange. <laughs> Do, why doesn't it have a, like, why not give it a name like Fargan's Nards Nids Minds? I, I agree with you. I, the, the naming, the naming conventions of this book is very confusing because not only is the central planet where the spice, also known as melange, is found in the deep deserts and, and harvested, but also this 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 planet that is called this planet is referred to as Dune. That's the title of the book and the movie, but its real name is Arrakis, and no one ever says never one ever calls it Dune. <laughs> and all of the language and names are this <laughs> this weird pastiche of Flargan Garb made up language, an occasional Duncan Idaho thrown in there, and then weird like Dutch things like the the whole Parliament of the Empire is called the Lonsrod. But they also they also use like some Muslim terminology in their religion. They have jihads and whatnot. Yeah. Yes. Frank Herbert, I believe, was trying to do was to speculate what a syncretic humanoid spacefaring culture might be like 10,000 years from now, where terms, terminology, cultures, faithways and other customs just calling it all mishmashed together. And the important thing about this culture is that it has no computers, right? Because this is there, there. There's a background here that is not explained in the movie at all, 
which was that some thousands of years ago, there was the Butlerian Jihad, which was the destruction and the outlaw of all thinking machines, as they're referred all to. All right, all right, all right, all right. What was Paul Atreides looking at on that iPad <laughs> earlier? Yeah, on the, the one film? thing that survives 10,000 years in human culture is steampunk. There's so much more wood grain in this film than I thought we'd ever get in a science fiction movie set 10,000 years into the future. Yeah, I know, right? I really love how, like, how the different planets have have really like thoroughly elucidated architectural styles like like Caladan is super wooden and and like ornate and the the planet that the emperor lives on looks like a Gaudi house or something <laughs> yeah you're talking about Kaitan <laughs> Kaitan excuse me yeah, I'm, there's I'm tucked leather in their in their spacecraft which I think is is very nice it's a it's oh. a, gr- a great lowrider <laughs> hat tip <laughs> John Roderick, I am so glad and grateful that you noticed the tucked leather interior of the ornithopter because even even as a even as a 13-year-old seeing that I was like I've never seen the inside of a spaceship that looked like that. Like this movie is a disaster. This is a wreck, but that is cool that they decided to make make this look Make this look like the the interior of a cabinet of wonders or something. Have you like they were building sets with the intention of taking them home afterwards yeah. after production? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, the controls of that spaceship are just two um, like library reading, uh, like magnifying glasses yeah. that they took the lens off of. <laughs> and then there's a Chesterfield sofa, but they but they put it on the wall. Have you seen this movie before, John Roderick? So let me let me explain just a little backstory. I, I was astonished Please. at how much about Dune Ben Harrison at the at the mere mention of Dune, uh, he went into like a like a trance state <laughs> and just started just started describing the Dune universe as you, John Hodgman, have done to me many times after five gin and tonics. Uh, in hotel rooms across America, <laughs> you have gone into a trance state and started talking about Frank Herbert's Dune. I never saw the movie and never read the book because mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. seventh grade Fair. at Wendler Junior High School in Anchorage, Alaska, there was a social division between uh, Lord of the Rings people and Dune people. And for some, for some reason <laughs> in seventh grade, the Dune people... In the back, in, in the back of Ms. Elsley's French class, the Dune people and the and the Lord of the Rings people sat separately, and glared at each other. They don't seem incompatible to this me. This is the Essie Hinton novel that I want to yeah. read. This is the real <laughs> outsider. And the, right? the thing is, like, like we, yeah, you don't mess with those Dunies. We peered at each other over the over the tops of our monster manuals, and said, you know, uh, the Lord of the Rings interpretation of Dungeons and Dragons was superior to the Dune interpretation of Dungeons and Dragons. And for some reason, I got a mental block where I felt like I was an enemy of Dune. So when the movie came out, I was already, I was already allied against Dune. (laughs) Is this your first viewing of this film? Then my first, my first viewing of it. And I had to overcome some serious like social uh some social barriers that i'd put up when dune was a when dune was regarded as a flop in the mid 80s i rejoiced i celebrated it as if an enemy 
had been vanquished. <laughs> what about you, Adam Pranica? Are you a? Uh, did you read the book, or have, had you seen the film before? I never read the book. This was my first time seeing the film as an adult. I watched this film for the first time as a kid. Wow! And uh, I will just say that the poster and the and the box art for the VHS cassette. I think promise is a thing that it doesn't quite deliver. It looks it looks like a movie that a kid my age at the time would have really liked. And I remember sitting down and just being completely stupefied by it. And then I never watched it again. Man, I, I think I'm the only one here who read the book first then. Yes. John, when you walked out of the theater there in 1984, were you swept away or were you uh, befuddled? I was intrigued. I knew that it was a... A failure of a movie right you can't watch it and not know that and I was less confused than I might have been because when I entered because I had taken a couple of stabs at reading the first couple of chapters it's a little dry at first took and I was too young but so I knew a little bit about stuff that you would never know about if you watched the movie like who who's watching that movie going like oh I get it he's using the voice I know what that means like you, know, you would never <laughs> you would never know that the Benny Gesserit sisterhood has developed this physical technique of altering their voice that causes people to obey what they say no matter what against their own interests it's great. Red like, rum, but luckily red rum, red rum. <laughs> as I entered the oh, theater Tim McGonagall and I they handed me they ripped my ticket and handed me a glossary what? of terms. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. So clearly Universal who released this movie knew, oh, we have a real problem. <laughs> because I don't I'm not sure. Like we're marketing this as the next big space franchise. We're making coloring books. We're making storybooks. We're making action figures. This is going to be our Star Wars, but no child in the world knows or frankly cares about what the Ephigam Jabbar is. <laughs> I care. I care. Uh, I read that Virginia Madsen her contract had her signed up for three films in the Dune series sure. because they, they were banking on this being Star Wars for grown-ups. So confident were they. I mean they they I mean look they got Toto to record the music. Uh, I'm looking I'm looking right here on eBay right now at the 1984 David Lynch Dune movie glossary handout sheet handed out oh, yeah. by Universal Studios. Uh you can get one for $40. I only see one for sale right now. And there are zero bids. I'm going to have to open that up for the recording of our show today. I think that'll really help me. <laughs> okay, so let's see here. It starts uh, Arakan, the capital of the planet Arrakis, known as Dune. Dune. Atreides, ruling house of the planet Caladan. The Atreides family currently comprises Duke Leto, uh, uh, Sworn his, concubine, his formal concubine, the Lady Jessica, and their son Paul, and it goes on. It's a it's a two page, I think wow. it's it's like it's it's written front and back, and it's right. printed over a uh, over a painting, like a Frank Herbert Herbert painting of two moons rising over a desert planet. Did you keep your sheet, John Hodgman? Hold on just a second. Stop the show. Yeah. Stop the show. 
Stop the show. (laughs) This says that the water of life is the liquid exhalation of a sandworm produced at the moment of its death from drowning, which is changed by a Fremen to become the Reverend Mother to become the narcotic, which increases awareness. So that is nowhere in this movie that sandworms, A, ever die, B, liquidly exhale, or, or C, have anything to do with the production of the water of life, which is a major plot point. Yeah, that's the big reveal. That's the connection that Paul, Paul Mwadib, a.k.a. Usul, a.k.a. Paul Atreides, everyone's got 15 <laughs> names in this thing, <laughs> Kyle McLaughlin makes, which is that no one knows that the worms produce the spice, first of all, which they do. They eat, like, I think they, like, they eat, like, pre-spice and then they poop spice it's and then poop, they vomit right? this spice is yeah. poop spice is worm poop it's like worm ambergris yeah yeah and then they vom- and then they vomit this this psychedelic drug that that helps the Benny Gesserit uh, sisterhood uh, gain, gain preconception um, yeah so but you know how could you I mean when I saw when I saw this glossary I, even as a teenager I was like Oh, basically, they might have handed us a piece of paper that just said we failed to do our job. Like there, <laughs> we we didn't get any of this in the movie. We forgot how to write things, and maybe doing their job is impossible because there's so much. What people like about the book is the richness of its world building and its weirdness and its oddness. And yet, when you think of a giant, you know, a giant drug pooping, drug vomiting sandworm. You're like, oh, that's a cool idea if you're high and reading a book in 1969. Well, this is the mid-80s. Drug use and drug production is famously difficult to depict in 80s movies. We never see it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when you're seeing and hearing these things on a screen, it's sort of like a superhero movie, right? Like, you accept someone wearing pajamas in a comic book. When you see them wearing pajamas and standing on top of a, 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 a building, right? It looks kind of dumb. And I feel like, in many ways, I always considered it this to be unfilmable. And what they did with it was instead create one of the strangest visual feasts of all time. That's all I have to say about that. I mean, the Yodorowsky adaptation that was in the works before this, like the script for it uh, is estimated to have worked out to about 10 to 14 hours of <laughs> of stuff that he intended to film. So... So, like, compressing it down to two hours and 15 minutes is... But there uh, is a middle ground, Ben. Like, I could have used another hour. You could show you could show the melange, right? Well, there is... Yeah, there was, like, a three-hour, uh, like, rough cut of the film. And I think that the studio is why all the, all the voiceover and stuff was added. Because they just felt like it was entirely contextless. And, I mean, like, that's something that I really like about... Star Wars, like there are all those like tossed off references to the Kessel Run or whatever that like you never you never need to like visit Kessel to know that that's just like part of the universe that these characters inhabit. You're saying that the movie that the movie Solo was perhaps unnecessary. You didn't have to go and see him too. <laughs> I hold that Solo is is one of the only two good Star Wars movies. Whoa. So it's very it's very charming. It's very charming. But 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 Star Wars did this exact thing, which is that the that. Lucas went back and made the three prequels, all of which were just as gibberish as Dune, 
David Lynch was like, we're going to make a grown up Star Wars. And and George Lucas was like, I'm going to make a shitty kid Dune. <laughs> George Lucas is like, what if Dune were aspirational and not a, a warning to other filmmakers? David Lynch was actually offered Return of the Jedi and oh turned God. it down to do Dune. But I guess my 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 question is like, uh, well, and we're we're going to get to this at the end when when John reveals his feelings about the new Dune trailer. But why would anyone try to make Dune as a movie again? Especially in this day and age when we're doing <laughs> four and five season television shows to explore uh, premises that are thinner than this one. Why wouldn't you do this as a as a 10 episode arc? Why prolong the inevitable? Take my hand, gentlemen, and let's step through the portal into Dune the movie. <laughs> I will only take your hand, John, if you stand under a pipe that is leaking oil onto your head and then you come over and you pull out my heart plug so that I bleed to death. Talk about aspirational. In a, in a science fiction blockbuster. Go ahead. My first question is, if you are uh, an Atreides from the planet Caladan, uh, how can you, if you look at, it's a militarized society, right? And everyone, all the men are in uniform. But as far as I could tell, they all have the exact same rank. They all have epaulets that have two stripes <laughs> on them. And I think the prince, Kyle McLaughlin, has a star on his epaulet. But everyone, and then the king or the duke has a red eagle on his chest. But everyone else has the exact same rank. Now, explain to me their military. I have to say this to you, John, and I and this is a tribute to you. I have watched this movie several times in my life. I really enjoy it as an expression of sure of pure bat poop misunderstanding of what the audience wanted and expected versus what you could do on screen at the time. All of the all of the frictions that this of strangeness that this movie brings to bear. I watched it again last night thinking I'll probably see something new in here. No, didn't saw it all again. Loved it for all the same reasons. Saw nothing new <laughs> until you just said that about only John Roderick would be looking at the pips and the stripes and the laurels and the clusters <laughs> on these uniforms. And I'm going to say I'm going to venture to guess that it was because this thing was made. This thing was made by De Laurentiis and an almost all Italian crew and costume designers. As you say, it was like it was all made like it was, they were making beautiful ornate shoes all the sets were beautiful ornate shoes that they could take home <laughs> and i think they didn't have any idea of military structure whatsoever they're like just put them in these uniforms we'll make them all the same who cares paul's got that braided rope thing that goes under his arm on one side of his uniform what does that mean you are either an aide-de-camp to a um to royalty or to uh, to a high-ranking officer you're either an aide-de-camp or it's some decoration on like a a decoration that is given to royalty that just dresses up their uniform that and it's it's always called like the the undergarment of the scepter or something you know it's not what i'm saying is it's not rank it's a sign of office but it isn't like a you don't salute the braid you know so it's I'm not saying. technically stolen valor when I put a braid under my arm on in my Max Fun Con t-shirt. <laughs> if it's light blue and it suggests that you were airborne, I think you might get in trouble. What did you think, John, <laughs> when the Atreides family and troops have have moved 
to Arrakis, the planet known as Dune. And they're suddenly in their desert, in their desert uh, tan. Precisely. <laughs> I thought that was pretty I, I hot. I rejoiced. I rejoiced. I was like, of course they have their fucking safari uniforms. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they got the they got the shorts. They're like the British in uh, North Africa. Learning that right? this movie was was set dressed by Italians, it all makes sense. That brings up something that I had never considered about this movie before watching it for Friendly Fire. Are the Atreides fascists? Like they rule a planet and they like walk around their home in uniform. It was a thing that 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 made me think in in a future world where where each planet is basically a country where we're we're talking about a league of nations except it's a league of planets. What that means is whatever the right. internal political problems there were on that planet as it was as it was evolving and coming up, there had to have been a hundred different races, a thousand different countries on that planet and they all eventually were ruled by a single family by a single clan i always had the impression that these were earthling humans that had like yes. moved out into the stars though like that they all have a common home planet they are all descended from earth it is a human it is a human diaspora because that like really complicates the like imperialism part of this too like they all conquered everything at, at some point, right? Yeah, and also, of course, it, it turns out that of, of the billions of inhabitants of Earth, the only ones who reached the stars were white British character actors. Like, right. <laughs> I confused Paul Atreides' dad and, uh, and the leader on Arrakis several times. I thought when Paul Atreides met that guy, the leader of the Fremen, that was his dad, and he was somehow alive yeah. again. Paul Atreides' <laughs> dad is the commander of Das Boot. That's right. You're Jürgen Prochnow. Prochnow. While, while his, other da- his other dad, his Fremen daddy, is Everett McGill, uh, <laughs> who, who played yeah. Big, who's Stilgar, who played Big Ed in Twin Peaks, the owner of the, the, owner of the gas station, who was married to the woman with the yeah. eye patch. And then he basically didn't work again. I'm over here on the IMDb page trying to find out the name of the production designer because I really should have been armed with this. But I, instead, I hit this trivia, this trivia section. Did you know? Trivia. Brad Dourif, the famous, uh, incredibly spooky-looking character actor, and Wormtongue from the Lord of the Rings movies. You mean I have to live out the rest of my life in this body? No fucking way! He, he's the one who, who bridged the Doonies versus the Ringies. Right. Yeah, what did what did you think of that, Roderick? Were you were you able to accept Brad Dourif in this film? Well, you know, I once I got going in in the movie last night, I realized that you could <laughs> appreciate uh The Lord of the Rings and hate Dune and not have it keep you from watching and enjoying the movie Dune. And by enjoying, I mean it's absolutely a time capsule of the 80s. I'm astonished that Sean Young yeah. was the only actress uh, considered for science fiction roles from 1980 to 1985. Yeah. <laughs> she, she did have a, a string of almost plotless but incredibly beautiful to look at science fiction movies, didn't she? And then at the very end, she's, she's going like, yeah, 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 <laughs> which is the magic voice weapon that apparently you need a staple gun to activate. That was fascinating. 
I really love that there's so little time in this movie for exposition that we get the relationship between Sean Young and Kyle MacLachlan as a as a cross dissolve. Like you see them kissing on top of another scene <laughs> to suggest that they've uh-huh. grown intimate. That's good. Yeah. They took the story to a certain point by telling the story, or I mean, showing the story. And then immediately, as soon as he gets jumped into the uh, the Fremen Siege and rides a worm, it's like, it becomes pure montage. Like two years yeah. go by, they fall in love. Here's a picture of them kissing. <laughs> I'm telling you what's happening. They fell in love. Two years of siege warfare occurs. It's a lot coming at you in this world of Dune. But Hodgman, <laughs> we cut you off. You were about to uh, read a goof. The the goof identified in IMDb is the is the thing that I noticed last night for the first time, which is that Brad Dourif, who plays the character Peter DeVries, who is the Mentat, the living human computer of the Baron Harkonnen, the bad guys, repeatedly refers to the interplanetary parliament, the Lonsrod, as the Lonsdrod. <laughs> you put the D in the wrong place. Well, I mean, I know that we're all just out there going, bruh, 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 bruh. but this is a this is a motion picture set. <laughs> Do you know? Like, Nobody caught it on set. Yeah, there's a there's someone there's someone called the 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 continuity person, script the script supervisor, who's going to be coming in and going like, um, I know it's look, I know it's dumb. Look around you, everyone's got their head shaved down the middle. Everyone is sitting. Everyone is sitting in sharper image chairs in a in a green factory, and Sting's about to walk in uh, with a cat attached to a machine with a rat taped to its side. But we are trying to create the reality of this world, yeah. and in this world, the interplanetary <laughs> parliament is the Lonsrod, the Lonsrod, not the Lonsdrod. Do you think, Brad, you could get that? <laughs> Brad Dorf was like, "I'm about to tear these fake eyebrows off my head and walk away." You don't shut up right now. <laughs> the movie sets that I've been on have always had the script supervisor right next to the director, like ready to jump in to make a correction. And I can't imagine how much more fraught that moment is when your director is David Lynch. Like the intensity, the confidence required to hop in and go, no, actually, we can't move on. We got to correct this pronunciation. <laughs> Oof, that's tough. Here's another one. Uh, this is also from IMDb. Both Duke Leto Atreides and his son Paul wear changing rank insignia on their dress uniforms. On planet Caladan, Paul wears an eagle, a star, and a bar, as does his father and his friend, Duncan Idaho, which makes no sense at all. During their space travel to Arrakis, Paul's epaulette sports an eagle and two stars. Leto's an eagle and three stars. This is logical because the Duke is one military rank above his heir. On Arrakis, the epaulettes of the desert camouflage uniforms are the same as at the start of the movie. This was put in IMDB apparently it was just entered <laughs> what seven minutes ago John <laughs> I have I, I have the app on my phone no, this is really there I, I definitely feel like the main one of the main the, characters in this movie and I remember seeing you know seeing pictures of the the this because this movie was heavily promoted in 84 it's not like I could avoid seeing it I didn't I didn't actually attend a screening of it but I saw pictures of it in all the magazines and in watching it now, it seemed to me that one of the main characters is um, a perspiration. Like every Harkonnen mm. is in a rubber suit, a rubber costume of some kind, 
and they are all right. sweating profusely yeah. all the time. They're covered with with dew, which the movie seem, kind of makes look like herpes. Could you say they're covered in dune? No, no, <laughs> no not at all. You couldn't say that. <laughs> all right. But what? Why is everything in this movie so gross? Like it's so gross, and it's not gross. Like it's not fun. Gross. It's not. It's just like pussy. I watched this movie on an airplane last year, and I was very self-conscious in the like popping Baron Harkonnen's pimples scene that like other people were looking over my shoulder and and seeing that. I mean, it's so Cronenbergian right. in its body horror. It's so off-putting. It's so strange. And, you know, again, this was, a, they were talking about it being Star Wars for grownups, but they were marketing it to children. I have here before me a copy of the Dune Coloring Book, copyright 1984, Dino De Laurentiis Corporation, written, written, their captions, by Michael Nicastre. This was given to me by a, 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 a fan of Maximum Fun at a Max Fun Con. Color in the pus on Baron Varkonen's face. <laughs> They have an image here of the doctor working on the Baron's boils. It's a coloring book. The, ca I'm, the caption says, I will burn away the sickness, says the Baron's doctor. But <laughs> it's so bizarre. That scene is also like incredibly homophobic. Uh, and, oh, and, yeah. And and. and I wonder if that is like I don't really remember that being a part of the Baron's character in the book, but uh, but maybe it is, I, and I just don't remember. But like the the idea that like the bad guy has to be like diseased and gay and like engaged in some kind of like homoerotic yeah. blood play at all times that to my genuine shame that that is something that I I noticed in the past, but not, but did not take the appropriate offense at. Until last night when I was watching, I was like, oh, yeah. 1984 would have been right in that moment in the AIDS crisis where everybody knew about it and was terrified of it, but nobody understood it. Peak, like, you can get AIDS from a toilet seat, America, where the the homophobia and the, like, the, and right. the gay plague rhetoric was ramped up, and it, it did not miss this movie at all. It's why so many people didn't touch each other's heart plugs at the time. You just... <laughs> You didn't want to catch AIDS that way. The sci-fi miniseries, there is also, it, it's, it is not depicted as purely grotesque, but there's, definite, there's definitely ogling of, by the Baron Harkonnen, of his nephew, Fade Routha, uh, who is the pretty one. Guys who have read the book, do they tell you what Baron Harkonnen is sick with? Because I think to John Roderick's point, like, it's one thing to... to be confronted with gore when there's a reason for it but there's just no reason for why we're seeing what we're seeing in a way that i think would really help well my sense of it was that the harkonnens had been in control of the spice planet for long enough that they had become spice addicts arrakis also known as dune also known as the, the seventh <laughs> seal of the seventh sun is this a Myanmar? It's a Myanmar Burma, Burma situation. situation. That's why they're in their. <laughs> that's why they're in their colonial costumes. Okay, but that that the the unspoken sense, or at least not not having read the fifteen Dune novels, I got the feeling that the Harkonnens had become junkies because they were because all of that all of their behavior was broadcasting this kind of junkie mania, 
And then especially when yeah. the like giant uh, vagina potato that was in the in the like <laughs> the the <laughs> the uh, in that RV full of sauce. <laughs> The, the vagina potato was exhaling spice to such a degree that it was like, oh, shit. If, you, if you're if you into spice for a long time, you get butt pussy boils. But if you stick with it, you become a vagina potato. Like spice, you don't just take spice. That's correct. There's no drug in any science fiction that you can take without there being consequences. Right? Something bad has to happen. Can you point to the man in the boat on the... <laughs> Vagina potato. <laughs> I just need to home in for a moment on the giant vagina potato because he is my favorite character. And this sequence, which thankfully comes very close to the beginning of the movie, is usually all I ever need to see before I can turn it off and be happy. To your question, John, you, you have intuited everything correctly. The, the spacing guild is the true power in the universe. They're coming to see the emperor Shaddam Padishah, the Padishah emperor Shaddam the fourth on Kaitan. It's sort of like how the three of us thought that we were the Padishah emperors of this program. But when Hodgman showed up, he proved that he was a third stage <laughs> guild navigator and kind of threw his power yeah. around in a way yeah. that would have embarrassed us if the, if our court was here. His tank is the biggest thing in the studio. Yeah, exactly. The tank. <laughs> all right. So, so you know, basically, the spacing guild is the true right. power. They're like the Koch brothers, <laughs> and and the and the and the emperor Shaddam the fourth is like mm -hmm. George W. Bush or mm -hmm. Donald Trump. I don't know. No, not mm -hmm. per, not perfect parallels, right? So, and they do. They take the spice to such a degree on purpose that it deforms them. And so a first stage guild navigator looks kind of like a normal human, but they get blue within blue eyes because that was the first sign of spice addiction. Second stage, you get weirder and weirder and weirder. Third stage, you're full out vagina potato <laughs> floating in a tank. So, you know, none of this is known to the 14-year-old me who is watching this. Right? None of this is known, even if this is described in your glossary, you know who knew? The girl sitting next to you knew. She definitely, yeah, she understood. Like, so there you are, you know, a, a non-Dooney, a ringy, confronted with this, this grotesque creature that is half phallus, half vagina, sneaking in to talk about how they just folded space from Ix, cool machines there better than Richesse, and Jose Ferrer is the emperor. Is, is I don't even think he was acting at that point. Like he just looks at him and goes, "Oh, okay." <laughs> oh, we're making small talk. I see. And the dude, the dude who's talking for you know the the humanoid space uh, guild member who's got those pustules coming out of his head. I think he's a second, a first stage or a late first stage guild navigator. It's, so anyway, for all of this, I would dare anyone to say they had ever seen anything in the movies like this before. I mean, from the costumes to the design of the tank to the fact that they have to hold this uh, like this uh, this uh, uh, old timey radio microphone in front of the, uh, the, the talking weirdo to translate him to 
by uh, to the, the when they when the guild navigators are leaving and the tank is retreating, they're like they're running vacuum cleaners over everything to clean up all of the gross juice that this thing oozed out. That's just what a considerate guild navigator does is employ some some vacuum and. Well, early on, they just bring bar towels, but then they switch to the vacuums yeah. later on. <laughs> I, I, and oh, by the way, did anyone notice when when the the third stage Golden Navigator is about to show up in the throne room and uh, Jose Ferrer as the emperor sends Virginia Madsen as his daughter Irulan away, never to be seen again in the movie? Uh, some guy's walking through the <laughs> some guy's walking through the throne room with like 15 yeah. bulldogs yeah. on leashes. <laughs> I loved every, I love it. I love it so much. It's just so, it's su- such a vision of uh, science fiction that had never been put on screen before. And I think that it's the framing of Jose Ferrer and the third stage guild navigator. Once your eyes get accustomed to the sheer bat feces weirdness of it it's actually a beautifully shot scene that's i would compare it to the moss eisley cantina as being like the moment where you realize like oh my god like this is a very rich world that we are entering into and i i am not going to understand a lot of it patrick stewart goes into battle at one point with a sharpay tucked into his shirt or whatever kind of freaking dog that was (laughs) (laughs) that should have been the poster that's right i forgot about that yeah there's so many pugs in this movie the greatest bit of science fiction is that a pug as a species would exist a generation after the current one (laughs) (laughs) it's super surprising to me that um that so many later directors and set designers looked at dune and said oh this is a this is a hot mess but there are five things i'm going to steal from it because I kept seeing stuff yeah. that I was like, oh, that that thing that in that movie that I liked is a reference to this movie that I don't like. Yeah. But the art designer, the art director was Pierre Luigi Basile and the and the uh, the, the costume designer was Giorgio Desideri. And there is definitely a kind of air of de- debauched Euro who who gives a fuckism to this whole adventure uh and that that i think would allow you know brad dorif to not be corrected for mistaking his lines do you know what i mean like anyway so i i i i think that you're right though john that that it, it presented something visually so jarring and this aesthetic is now associated with dune right because even though there there's been one remake and now a third like Denis Villeneuve's borrowing all kinds of like the yeah he's clearly working in the tradition yeah. of this film this is the visually. definitive dune look john i have a question for you how fearsome would you say on a scale of 1 to 10 were the emperor's elite shadukar warriors the terror troops in their yeah the terror troops in their garbage bag suits um they definitely <laughs> i mean they were they were a profound influence on uh on the gimp in Pulp Fiction. (laughs) Did you guys read that those suits were actually repurposed body bags, used body bags, and they didn't tell the actors until after production? Used body bags? Yeah. They they found them in some warehouse, and they were like, well, we got to use these. This is exactly what we're looking for. 
And so I guess they hosed them out, oh. uh, repurposed them for the production, uh, used them, and then after the fact, we're like, yeah, you know those those costumes you were wearing? Uh, those were body bags, actually. And uh, I know what questions you can you can ask next. <laughs> yes, they were used. Body bag. Yeah. <laughs> when you're tasked with designing the uniforms of an of elite shock troops, the Sardukar is what they're called, not the Shardukar. I made a mistake. You want to get into character, right? The decision is not. Oh, we gotta we gotta economize by using used body bags. The decision is let's make them look like rubber demons and use body bags. Where do we get body bags? Those suits kind of fail as a design in this movie in particular because of the still suits. And anytime you've got guys on the other side that are in rubber suits with lots of hoses, it it sort of makes for visual confusion. And yeah. I, I feel like the, the Sardaukar needed to look like they were designed to fight in outer space or something. thing is, what the Sardaukar looked like is basically Missy Elliott in the... <laughs> in, uh, uh, but, but with a face mask on? Yeah, Hype Williams did direct some of the combat sequences in this film. But I have to say that the, that the, that the, the suits that the Fremen used... And let me just say that if you're making a movie where you're you have characters named Gurney Halleck and Gaius Moheim and Herman Snargerbarg, that you should definitely you should definitely <laughs> name the characters who are free men Fremen. Uh, that's, that's super good. It's just about as good as calling your spice Melange. But the fact that their costumes are um, are like you know like korean war era soviet flight suits uh it that's a very fully realized part of the set direction and that whole scene where max von saito is is putting these suits on him and explaining how they work and then he he looks with surprise at kyle mclaughlin he's like you're wearing the suit you're dressing left like a like a real Fremen. How did you know to do that? And Kamala was like, that's just where it went, you know? That's just how I've... I love how on the, on the surface he's impressed, but below the surface there's the implication that Kyle McLaughlin like attached hoses to his dick and butt <laughs> and like fully plumbed his own suit knowing how it was going yeah, to work. in the style of the time. Yeah. How, how, do you, how do you feel, how do you think that Max von Sydow felt when he got that those days sides <laughs> and he got to the line, urine and feces are processed in the thigh pads. That's all I was thinking about when they were fighting. Like, these guys are running around with shit in their cargo pockets. <laughs> but like those suits and the, and that scene and uh, that actually did a lot of heavy lifting without a ton of exposition. I mean, they still did some exposition, but like the suits were were really cool and um i don't think that they needed i mean that like the nose thing just added that extra element of gr gross snot and pus that every character had to have but i th but i thought those i thought i thought the fremen suits were like um i think one of the coolest of uniforms in a movie that's all uniforms loki one of the coolest things about that scene is that Max von Sydow's suit is like 
beat up and dusty because he has been in the desert a bunch and all of the other dudes are in brand new still suits and they look kind of chumpy because of it like it's like oh you guys uh, you guys have brand because you've never been in the desert so you're new follow me i liked it i think i feel like we should talk a little bit about the like oil uh, and imperialism metaphors here because we'd probably be run out of town on a rail if we didn't um i mean it's like a pretty facile metaphor that this like resource is only available in this desert place and we have to go you know there's all this throne room intrigue about how we're going to control that desert place mm-hmm. um and that, and that the and that the native inhabitants of the desert place are anticipating a holy jihad at some point i mean right, right. these were these were decisions made by frank herbert you know the metaphor is much like the naming of the Freeman Fremen. It's very much on the, the, the on the nose theory of metaphor. <laughs> right. But like, I think it's interesting that they are humans from Earth originally. And the the history of how they got there or how many of them there are has sort of been lost to these people. And I think that that's that feels a little like neo-colonial, like like, oh, yeah, well, like, I mean, nobody really owns Arrakis because it's just a planet that humanity conquered at some point. Like the Harkonnens are cruel assholes, so we do, we don't like them. But like we don't actually know what the politics of any of these great houses of the Landsrad are. Thank you for saying it correctly. <laughs> Landsrad, Landsrad, Landsrad. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the the Max von Sydow character, Doctor Kynes, is a much bigger character in the book because the book is much. He is the planetary ecologist for the emperor, and the book has huge passages devoted to him talking about the interplay of climate and 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 culture and it's essentially a, a ecological activism book in many ways as it is also a, a a book its activist impulse is uh talking about how we we waste and squander resources and use resources to enslave other people so it's all that's definitely the, that's part of what the Dunies in Anchorage, Alaska, were were grokking at that time. It's part. It's 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 not it's not subtext. It's te- it's definitely text. Whether you think it's artfully done or not, that is the that is the plan. Well, except that that, that we're what, what we're watching are imperial struggles, house against house. There's no explication or real insight into what sh- surely are billions of exploited peoples. We see the Fremen are like rebels in the in the desert. They're the Mujahideen, but but there aren't we the only the only person we ever see that that kind of or the only people we ever see that don't have agency are the people in the Baron Harkonnen's um, like like sex. Pus room. You're gonna have to be more specific. There are a lot of rooms that fit that description. There's the there's the kid in the plastic poncho who gets pus raped, and there are the guys with the shaved heads that don't appear to be doing what they want. I mean, they don't appear to like have power to choose. And then there's a bunch of soldiers, right? But we never see any civilians who are just going about their daily jobs, just doing leather work and brass work on spaceships <laughs> and like out there whatever 
farming. Uh, I mean, somebody's got to be milking these worms for the blue juice, right? I mean, where does that stuff come from? We get the we get the one blue collar guy in David Lynch controlling the uh, the spice mining rig. We got wait you no you have the you have the vagina potato the juice vacuumers, vacuumers right but they all appear to be <laughs> the, <laughs> the dog professional walkers. dog walkers okay. I mean but that's kind of like an entry level white yeah. collar job I think because like eventually they start giving you enough spice <laughs> that you start to have your head warp and then they put a little pipe from right. the back of your head into your nose as famous as the mo- as famous as the movie and the story arguably is. And certainly as well known as the book is and as ecologically minded as the book is, I don't. And, and given the fact that the whole thing is premised around Paul Mwadib overthrowing the rule of Arrakis and giving it to the Fremen. Ultimately, if I remember correctly, Paul ends up marrying Irulan to as a political marriage. So it's you, you, there is no what about Johnny. No, yeah. No, she becomes his concubine. This movie just got a thousand times better. I want to live in Dune, Dune universe now. Can I be the the Farg McGargansnarg? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it really it really is ultimate. Even though there's there's a critique of imperialism and feudal systems, you 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 leave the book and definitely the movie feeling like oh this seems fun (laughs) you know like this seems like a pretty good way to run a universe you know like it doesn't really ask you to interrogate this i mean the system very much and people don't associate dune with a novel of activism and i and i it's been a long time since i've read it so i'd have to go back and see if that's fair or not like it it's that language of the divine right of kings that even we are falling into a little bit where it's like, well, he's the, like, Shaddam is the emperor. Why is the guild telling him what to do, you know? Because they're right. fucking space vaginas, yeah. vagina potatoes, and that's not who you want to run up against. Right. Yep. The, bu- the, the, book, the book definitely t- is a lot about po- political maneuverings and very cynical and, and jaded in its... Uh, in its depiction of uh, power and the various factions that are uh, competing for it and without being judgmental particularly of any of them as being morally good or bad. It is just the, the seeking of power for its own sake. That's the that's some of the interesting stuff in the book. I think it's really, especially given our, our current moment, super interesting that the backstory of the book is that they did away with thinking computers because thinking computers were determined to be uh, caustic or or detrimental to society, and they were going to go back to running spaceships with giant knobs and levers. Um, but what's interesting is that that does not appear to have created a society free of uh, like pussy rubber un- underpants. Like where? W- what is the path? What is the path? Uh, what What does science fiction tell us is the path to a place where we get to wear linen suits and wear our hair in dreadlocks? Because that's the other trope. What 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 movie are you referring to? I mean, I I'm not I'm not I'm with you, but I I really want to know if I've missed an important science fiction well, movie. With I'm thinking I'm thinking in particular um, uh, in the Matrix movies. After you, after you take the red pill, right? Um, you are suddenly uh, pooped out into a world where everybody is wearing linen 
and has dreadlocks, but also in the man, in the Mandalorian, when the Mandalorian <laughs> comes to the planet where the where they're farming the blue shrimps, um, everybody there is wearing linen and has dreadlocks too. I think that linen and dreadlocks are a are a signifier of um, bucolic futurism when you said linen i presumed you were talking about like white linen suits oh no not imperialist linen i'm talking about like flaxen garments hand woven by your by your modern primitivists (laughs) never trust a man who's rich in flax (laughs) i thought until you got to the dreadlocks i thought you were saying where is the science fiction that leads us to a world where everyone wears what, where everyone wears wears a a pith helmet and is carrying a tennis racket? That's that's my fictional universe. I, I guess I'd I guess I was a zoid. I don't know. Sting looks amazing in this movie. Yeah, he's the only person aside from John Roderick I've ever seen make that type of underpants work <laughs> as a fashion statement. I can't remember. Is there a chance? Do you have a chance in the movie to admire you his do. physique? Is there a moment? He wears a boomerang. <laughs> yeah, he's in some kind of steam shower, and then he steps out and he's we- he's wearing uh he's wearing the the eagle hair hat that Nicolas Cage wears when he wants to end an argument on the internet. Uh, my hat is a my hat is a bird. Your argument is invalid. He's wearing that except as except as a panty, and it's made of leather. And then he flexes and he has that, he has that particular, like, he's not, he's not a big man. His musculature is very refined and he's slim, but strong. Every muscle is clearly outlined. Yes. And he's, I, I never realized that Sting was so, um, he just, he seemed like he was made out of a kind of sweaty porcelain. I was going to say orange, sweaty marble, but yeah, there's a lot of spray tan also being in. Is that what Jack, you know, one of the background characters that you see on the Harkonnen side all the time is Jack Nance, who played the main character in Eraserhead. And he's that, he's that guy, he's kind of, and he he also ended up being in uh, Twin Peaks. He was the, um, the owner of the lodge. But he's that he's that guy with the they all have orange hair, but he's always kind of that nebbishy guy in the background, kind of adjusting technology and spraying things, kind of like you know yep. what I'm talking about? Yep. That's his direction. <laughs> Just adjust the technology. <laughs> David Lynch is like, Yeah, uh, Jack, here's what I need you to do. Go over there, move that dial around. Sting's gonna come down with an emaciated cat. Just go with it. I don't care how you pronounce the words. Let's go. Roll it. It's not a hairless cat. It's a cat we clearly shaved. Okay? Yeah. A cat yeah. that really does not want to be on that film set and yeah. wants to be out of that device. There were no cat unions at the time. You could do anything with a cat in a movie. Can you explain why Thurfir Hawat has so many cold sores? It's not cold sores, John. His, his lips have been dyed. That's an intentional look that looks like like uh, like he's very chapped from a day on the ski slopes. Well, if you'll notice, Peter DeVries has the same red lips, and it's the uh, it's it's this uh, this drink that the uh, the Mentats drink to help them compute giant sums in their heads because they can't have computers. Oh, I see. Yeah, it's like uh, it's Adderall for them, right? Yeah, that's right. It makes them it makes them think fast. And it leaves red stains on their lips. Yeah. 
just like Adderall. <laughs> you didn't see the you didn't see the scene you didn't see the scene when Brad Dorf was on a cable car on Giddy yeah, Prime. Okay, I was there. <laughs> mumbling a weird poem to himself about how the lips the lips acquire stains the stains acquire, the stains become a warning. It is by yeah. will alone. I set my mind in motion. And then he drinks from a little flask. Oh, yes. Okay, I remember. That was that was the that was the explanation. You didn't Doesn't follow seem that like from Will seemed alone pretty clear. To me. But but <laughs> I don't know why. I mean, there are so many ways that you could interpret like his lips were stained red from a potion that don't look like he has uh like venereal disease all over his face. Maybe it looked better on the on the big screen. No, I think it just I think it looks better on paper. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Look, I mean, I'm, it's I'm, another it's another one of the drugs in this movie. This one's side effects are red stained lips and giant eyebrows. <laughs> I know those eyebrows. eyebrows. <laughs> uh, my, yeah, those eyebrows were truly disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> I saw a guy on the subway in 1998. I remember it almost to the day who had genuine owly eyebrows like that that went all the way back to his ears. It looked like a, a furry infest, infestation of his face, and it shook me to my very core. I did not care for it. Shook you because you, was he you like, had a glimpse of your future? No. <laughs> and he was just saying pi to like 256,000 digits? <laughs> he was not a mentat. <laughs> I refer back, by the way, John Roderick, in case you were unaware, the 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 home planet of the Harkonnen, House Harkonnen is Gidi Prime. If you don't know that, yeah, just look at page nine of the Dune coloring book. <laughs> Yidi Prime, the planet where the Baron lives, has many oil refineries and cable cars. Uh-huh. Oh, Is that Michael Nicastre, you did what you could. <laughs> you could what you, you you did what you could with these captions. Paul takes out his poison detector. <laughs> Is Giddy Prime happening in a universe where there are multiple Giddies and most of the other ones are divisible by by other planets or by Giddies? <laughs> I'm a seeker. Can't get me if I don't move. Low key, one of my favorite shots in the movie is the POV of the hunter killer. Oh yeah, hunter seeker. The hunter seeker hunter looking seeker. at his. He looks at his epaulet too. The Hunter Seeker is like, hmm, that epaulet just looks like everybody else on this planet. The Hunter Seeker's got the same visual system as a T-Rex. Can only see you if you move. That point of view shot was pretty incredible because not only was it blurry and weird, but they added a little machine, like, it was like a little pendulum in there or something. Yeah. It's yeah. not it's not a computer thing. It's like everything is everything is clock punk when it's not steampunk. <laughs> a lot of care was put into this a lot of talent was put into this a lot of great actors were thrown into this stew a, lo a lot of there was there's so much in it and all, none of it works it's all broken down it's tragic that's what i feel like it's I tragic. Have another question and that is about and i'd like us to discuss it as a group the special effects in this movie like this scene that you're talking about on optimus prime where the trolley car comes to the station <laughs> <laughs> and they're just uh, they're just on a ride on a trolley car it doesn't it has nothing to do with the rest of the movie we never see it again they clearly built an enormous set all right so one thing we need to do is establish why this eyebrow, eyebrow freak is so smart yeah. we have to establish that he drinks his juice how do we do this dramatically in a way that's interesting i know we'll put him on a cable car and he recites a poem build a cable car build a four million dollar set 
Alien got a quarter of the budget, was made five years before this movie, and was able to credibly make the worlds that feel like visually related. Right. Whereas the the worms, which are the major, I mean, they're the whole the the movie hangs on the worms. Um, they they have the same problem that a lot of uh, war movies have, where the problem with water is that it doesn't scale. If you put a little model of a boat in a in a tank the waves look wrong apparently that's also true of sand because if you take a play-doh worm puppet that is the size of your arm and you have a puppeteer run that worm puppet through a box of sand it does not look like a giant worm it looks like a play-doh worm puppet it's really inconsistent because there's moments where they look amazing like when when paul takes the water of life and the worms are like perched on the hills around them it looks yeah awesome and then there are other times when there are a bunch of like drawn action figure men on the <laughs> on the on the rubber worm and it like comes to a stop and and shakes like it's a tiny object that shakes when it comes <laughs> to a stop the, the worms were never weaponized though they're just like vehicles to uh so that so that our guys can shoot their weirding weapons, right? I don't think we ever see a worm kill anyone. They they come down on like a crowd of Sardaukar at one point in the big final battle. But yeah, they they're also getting fucked up by the the emperor's ship. You see one of them get one of its three jaws shot off Ooh. at one point. Come on, wormy. Yeah. yeah, worms like look, they they obviously could they obviously had blown all of their budget on cable cars <laughs> when, it came, when it came to the worms they're like oh yeah we don't have all the money in the world anymore we're gonna have to do the best we can they they did not figure they they figured out that worms look best in silhouette when they're not moving and hovering over that that ritual or whatever when you get the worm moving or whatever that just doesn't look good and frankly as again this is the thing that i'm going to be interested to see in the new dune the idea of getting a big fish hook and opening up a the segment of a worm to climb to climb up on top of it and and with and use your bungee cords to ride it described in the book that does not sound like the stupidest thing in the world described <laughs> by me it does sound like the stupidest thing in the world and when you see it it looks like the stupidest thing in the world when we fly the electric guitar sound into that moment in the movie is that yeah. cool or terrible <laughs> It's the you. coolest part of the movie, by that, far. I love that moment. <laughs> we haven't heard an electric guitar once. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you've moment. got you've yeah. you've got no less than Toto and Brian Eno collaborating on the music for this. I kind of hope. I I know that it's not going to happen, but like if if there could just be like a DVD extra of Denny Villeneuve's version of Dune scored with the music from the original Dune, that would make me really happy. Also, I would like for someone to on YouTube to take that scene where they get on the worm and when the electric guitar comes in, just cut to the Doof Warrior from <laughs> Mad Max Fury Road. We needed more Doof Warrior. <laughs> or is it Doof Guitarist? Do, you know yeah, Doof, I mean. Doof Guitar. I'm going to go uh, I'm going to go out on a limb here. And I'm going to say that all that's cool about this movie was foreshadowed by the movie Flash Gordon oh. in 1980, also starring Max von Sydow or Sydow or Snydow. Yes, right. But 
the whole universe, all of the special effects, basically, um, the steampunkiness of it, it's all in Flash Gordon. And Flash Gordon's soundtrack is by Queen, a far superior soundtracking machine than Toto. And throughout Mm -hmm. Dune, I kept waiting for, when they get up on the worm, I kept waiting for the guitars to go, flash, ah. I was like, where's Queen? We need Queen. If if Queen had scored this movie, it would have been at least 10% better, maybe 25% better. But if you watch these movies back to back, Flash Gordon and Dune, Flash Gordon, which is, I think, universally considered a completely corny crackerjack movie, uh, Flash like like it exceeds Dune in every respect. Wow, you're a, you're a troublemaker, John. That is Lovett. a nuclear take, John. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if a lot of people share that. I'm a Flash Gordon fan. Mm-hmm. I think I think we have to go watch Flash Gordon tonight, all of us, and just. Uh-huh. Is Flash Gordon a war film? Well, mm. of course. Yeah, Ming the Merciless. There's a massive assault on Mongo. Well, Ming is Ming well, is about well, to. He's trying you know. to destroy the Earth. You want right, to come and, back for that one, John Hodgman? <laughs> yeah, I'll come back for that one because okay. yeah, because the the whole climax of the film is that Flash is able to unite uh, the Baron and the and the tr- and the tree dwellers with the uh, Birdmen, uh, <laughs> who are who are who are bossed around by Brian. Brian Blessed and Timothy Dalton is uh, Prince Baron of the Tree Men. They hate each yes. other. Flash is like, uh, get together, you guys. We have a common enemy. And they all fight together. They do, to defeat me. Interesting. Speaking of like comps in the neighborhood that, uh, <laughs> that we can uh, assess this film's value against, uh, there's a storied um, version of dune that never got off the launch pad that we've alluded to a couple of times that i, I highly recommend the documentary about it's called yodorowski's dune uh it's really a really great documentary and it's about like the version of dune that would have been directed by another extremely weird filmmaker alejandro yodorowski listen to this the the music would have been by pink floyd and magma good god <clears throat> the, the visual effects uh, and artists were Dan O'Bannon, who wrote, who went on to write Alien, and then H.R. Giger, Jean Giraud, and Chris Foss. And then here's the cast Salvador Dali for The Emperor, Orson Welles for Baron Harkonnen, Mick Jagger as Fade Routha, Udo Kier as, as Peter DeVries, David Carradine as Leto Atreides. <laughs> David Carradine, probably an actor who really enjoyed the tight suit. <laughs> <laughs> Jodorowsky's own son, Brontus, as Paul Atreides. Brontus Jodorowsky. <laughs> and this was the one that uh, turned into a 14-hour epic that where the, the funding dried up. The, ar- the, the, yeah, the illustrations for like the ships and costumes and stuff for that that are available are amazing. And it's a great documentary. It's true. Yeah. It's like where the Xenomorph design came from was, was pre-pro for that film. And they like, they basically picked that stuff up. Like De Laurentiis was, had been booked, had booked Ridley Scott to direct Dune and Ridley Scott backed out. Uh, but took O'Bannon and Giger with him and made Alien. Wow. Oh, interesting. Yeah. One time I was on an airplane talking about why anyone would make this again. 
<laughs> and I was being flown to be in a television advertisement. And uh, therefore, I was being flown first class as during the, the, the high Hodgman period of my life. <laughs> and... Who I only celebrate me? the high Hodgman holidays <laughs> yeah. in my household. It's the only time we go to go to temple. So <laughs> I'm sitting in first class, and the person who sits down next to me is a guy, and I I immediately recognize him. Uh, he is the actor and now well-known director Peter Berg, and Peter Whoa. Berg directed Friday Night Lights yeah. as well as Battleship. <laughs> Yeah, I, ju- uh, I just wrote a I just wrote an essay intro for a friendly fire film all about Peter Berg that uh, that John I just I just oh, read that wrote. essay and it was brilliant. I learned so much about Peter Berg. I didn't use any of it, but Peter Berg sat sat down and and, and I was going to be cool. I'm not going to be like, hey, Peter Berg, because also I didn't want, I didn't want to have anything to talk to him about. Uh, and we got stuck on the tarmac for a long time waiting to take off. There were delays. And he gets to talking with me and complaining about, you know, the delay and everything else. And then I, I, no- I notice that he's reading hmm. the novel Dune. And I Did say, he complain about the delay by saying the spice must flow? I can tell you though, when when Hodgman saw that he was reading Dune, I I'm sure that you I'm sure that you cackled audibly. <laughs> I actually just to show you how 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 mature I had grown since the first time I ever saw the movie Dune. Here I am seated next to a stranger, and no, and now that I remember it, he uh, he didn't speak to me at all. I t- I spoke to him. That's how unshy I became. Very different well, because, situation from because the, the whole you thing described earlier. <laughs> I know the whole thing. I, I I wanted to say that he made conversation with me, but that's not true. He was he had a copy of the. Uh, we've been sitting and sitting and sitting and sitting there. He had a copy of the book Dune, and he said, and I said, boy, you know, I wish I had a copy of Dune to read right now. And he said, turned to me and he smiled. And he said, "Do you want one? I got two copies." <laughs> I'm like, excuse me. He said, "Yeah, I got one in my bag." Like, I'm like, like a guy right. who, like a Scientologist who has two copies of Dianetics at all times, like right. for yourself and one to give away. And at that point wow. I said, why do you have two copies of, I have to ask, why do you have two copies of Dune? And he said, well, I'm thinking about turning it into a movie. And at that point, <laughs> at that point, at that point I'm like, oh, 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 well, first of all, A, that doesn't answer my question why you have two copies. Two, you know that this has been done, right? Like, surely, you, you if you're not aware of the David Lynch one, you're out of your mind. But then there had been another Dune that had been made at that point. And it also didn't do very well. It was the sci- it was a sci-fi channel miniseries. So, like, why why are you taking another bite of the apple? And and finally, we got around to that. And he's like, you know, look, this look, is a John very... Look, John Hodgman. Look, yeah, look, John Hodgman. I don't want to seem, like, cynical about this, but, you know... I was approached by the studio and I and I, I I dug around. I'd never read the book before. I'm really enjoying it. But I also took a look at its sales figures. This is a massive science fiction franchise that has huge cultural impact over many generations. This is exactly what movie studios are looking for. And you look at the top grossing movies, they're all coming of age stories, a young man's coming of age story, whether it's Star Wars or Harry Potter. Dune is one of them. This can be done. And basically he said, and, I, and I'm like, okay. And he's like, and you know the David Lynch one? I'm like, yeah. He said, 
Yeah, that one was a little fucked up. Basically, I want to turn it into a boy's adventure. <laughs> Mark Wahlberg is Paul Atreides. In. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, basically, he's like, that one was that one was too gimpy and, and gay and weird. <laughs> I got to go to Arrakis to make the spice flow. <laughs> hey, Fate, say hi to the Baron for me. <laughs> and he was going to bro it up. That was wow. his plan. Yeah. And, he, and he never... He never ended up making it and it, i see you know i over see the, on uh, john hodgman's ebay profile peter berg's annotated copy of the novel yeah. dune yeah all of his all of his pencil uh marginalia is that's fucked up that's fucked up not fucked up enough fuck this up more fuck up more fucking could piter be speaking in a boston accent yeah right and the fact is that no one could they just couldn't give up they couldn't give up on it like i guess it's universal well no warner brothers has the rights now because they're releasing the new one but Whoever had the rights, it was just like, it's a massive science fiction franchise with a lot of built-in awareness. You're gonna take you're gonna make, take another swing at it no matter what, no matter how weird and unfilmable and, and ultimately all previous versions had failed dramatically. They've got to, they, they, just, they can't, it's the spice, they're addicted. They gotta, they gotta get that spice, gotta get that melange. So tell me what, what is it? If you've read all 15 of these books, if you are Dune head, if you go to Dune conventions, what is it in the story that makes it, because there are so many things, there are so many dude things that are just about knowing a bunch of lists of names and numbers, right? I mean, people that are like train spotters or military aircraft nuts like Adam, all they care about is that there's a thing that they can learn and know, right? Like... Is that what Dune is about? Just like a complicated set of numbers and names that you are a fan of because you took the time to memorize and now you're pot committed and you have to think that you like it? Or is there really some big, like epic story of humanity? If we all could just understand Dune, then our hearts would open and we would all be able to fold time and our eyes would turn blue. I think this is a cool coming of age story where a boy becomes a man and just bros out with some sandworms and stuff. I don't know. I mean, he doesn't just become a man. He becomes God. Oh, he becomes a worm. Right. He becomes eventually. God and then he becomes a fucking vagina potato. <laughs> no, he becomes a worm. He doesn't become a third stage guild navigator. But I'll confess, I've never read any other Dune What do you mean he becomes a worm? Because you're saying that the worms are old humans that, that took enough spice? That they became worms? I don't know. I never read those books. I only read Dune. God, we're going to get so many emails. <laughs> it's just an avalanche. And here's what I think is true about... I've explained what I like about this movie, which is it's a massive collection of talent, wild, a wildly original visual sort of style, and a huge tragic train wreck married to a bizarre marketing campaign. Like, it's just weird. It's this cultural artifact that I just adore. The novel Dune, the last time I read it was probably five, ten years ago. But I remember getting to the end of it, it was like, that was an incredible read. It took me some really interesting places. A lot of it is very, and this is why I consider it kind of infilmable, and why they added all that, uh, whatchamacallit, uh, uh, inner dialogue. It's like A lot of it is very heady and in your head and sort of pot-heady. There's a lot of ruminations upon our role in the universe. There's a lot of ruminations about... Uh, our role in nature 
uh, about different stuff, different, like there's a lot of philosophical mumbo jumbo that you, that you would imagine discussing in a coffee house in 1969 in Harvard square or whatever. And by the end of Dune, I was like, that took me to some really weird places. It's gotten as weird as I need. I know that it's only getting weirder because I know the next book based on what I read is sent 5,000 years later or something <laughs> like I know it's too weird for me. And then all the prequels to Dune are hated by the people who love Dune, Dune and the, and the, the ones that were written by Frank Herbert after Frank Herbert died, his son and a, and a science fiction novelist named Kevin J. Anderson collaborated on a series of prequel novels fleshing out the backstory that are fairly popular but are really disdained by the true doonies are they canon Um, they're they're canon for sure but not like you can see twitter fights all the time between the the old doonies and the new doonies i've had to mute dune on twitter (laughs) personally it's just too much but you know like the thing that got the thing that got in my head for Dune, from Dune, and it stayed there ever since, is the Bene Gesserit litany against fear. And I overheard our friend Elliot Kalin talking about this on a Flophouse podcast recently. Like, this was the thing that he would say to himself before every was this every the high school Flophouse exam. podcast episode where Elliot stayed in character as Tom, as Tom Brokaw, Brokaw the entire yeah. time and talked <laughs> only about Dune? <laughs> only about the new trailer. <laughs> but I mean, so this is the thing that's... At some point, Paul Paul is train is Paul Paul's Benny Jesser training teaches him this: the litany against fear. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I'm permitted to pass over me and through me. I must. Not and I just fear. remember reading that as a child, someone who was too scared to talk to girls, who so was confronted with fear all the time. And the idea that you allow fear to pass through you, over you and through you, and where it has gone, only you will remain. I'm getting goosebumps right now. And the book is full of like rubrics and homilies and parables like that, that are kind of like the tune deeply into, I guess, a, a white middle class 15 year old boy mind. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? So I think that, that to me, that's the connection to the novel. Yeah. And then the movie is different. One of the funnest things about a sci-fi novel is that somebody like Frank Herbert can set out to distill the highest knowledge of several different disciplines 5,000 years in the future for us to read and enjoy. <laughs> yeah, 10,000 10, 10, years, by the way. Oh, Sorry. Pardon me. That's why I didn't <laughs> yeah. laugh, because I was so appalled that you got that wrong. So did you live according to that aphorism, John, from the time that you watched this movie? Did you go out and let the fear pass through you from thenceforward? I had to go to Goodreads to find the quote, right? Because throughout my life, I've tried to memorize it, and I have failed but I have always tried to, I, you know, I think about it all the time. Anytime that I'm feeling paralyzed by anxiety or I'm not going to be able to do this or something's bad, the sense of visualizing fear as a way, as a, uh, as a something other that is beyond your control and yet endurable until it passes has been very helpful in my life. Have you ever yes. put your hand inside of a box that made it feel like it was burning and being tortured? <laughs> Of course, of course. 
Roderick has uh, several dozen of uh, those different boxes sitting on his uh, his piano. One makes you feel burning. <laughs> one makes you feel itching. John knows. He's seen them. I've gotten the Gamjabar from John Roderick a few times. <laughs> you know, it's the, the sting the sting of rebuke. It's not happy making, but I learn from it. Oh, the Gamjabar. Uh, anyway, uh, I promised that I would reveal what I think about the trailer for the new Dune, and. It, Here's the answer. Looks good. I like it. Looks good. I'll see it. <laughs> I like that it looks just like it's kind of more based on this movie than the book, maybe. Hmm. I like I like that Timothée Chalamet looks good. Like I like that he looks like a 15-year-old. Yeah. You know, because the character is supposed to be 15 years old. And I like that he looks, he, you know, that's one of the things that always bothered me about Jon Snow in the adaption of Game of Thrones because in Game of Thrones, all of those characters are five to ten years younger than they're portrayed in the TV show. Because it's supposed to be a, a fantasy medieval world where people, if they live to 35, they're old. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and so, you know, the the fragility of a, of, a, of a 15-year-old who's on that cusp between childhood and adulthood, that's so much more interesting to see visually someone dealing with these challenges than Kyle MacLachlan. As much as I love him. You know what I mean? He looked like a grown man. This is his film debut. Yeah, I know, but he was in his 20s. I wonder if as a filmmaker, like if Denis Villeneuve, if it's like climbing Everest and you're passing the frozen bodies on your way to the summit, like if you know as a director the challenge that this that this uh, source material represents and the failures that have come before, like if that makes it more stressful as a project... Like, this is a very accomplished director. Yeah, he's a guy who made a sequel to Blade Runner. I don't think he, <laughs> I don't think he thinks he's treading on hallowed ground. He doesn't yeah. feel that kind of fear. Yeah, that's, that's a great call. <laughs> you know, I, and he's visually, he's, his, visually, I thought all of the visual elements of the trailer were stunning. Yeah. To change the worms into buttholes is a bold choice. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I, I will say that, you know, now that we're in an age where CGI essentially makes every movie an animated movie suddenly that cgi effect it, it feels like the it feels more like an illustration and it feels more like the cover of a science fiction novel despite its analness you know what yeah. i mean like i was like oh that feels that actually looks okay millennials love butt stuff so that's probably a calculated <laughs> peter berg directed the worm in the new film <laughs> that's right we just need you for two days <laughs> <laughs> you are transparent. I see many things. All right. Well, we've we've spent a lot of time comparing Dune to other movies, but that is something in this segment that we can never do, and that's because we come up with a custom rating system for every friendly fire <laughs> film. That was that was mostly for your benefit, John Hodgman. I, I know you've never listened to this show before. Is this a show? It is now. Oh, yeah. We've been recording the whole time. <laughs> oh, okay, good. <laughs> I mentioned this up top. I've not read the book. And when I watched this film this time around, it sure did feel like this was a movie made for those people. Because there are so many scenes in this movie that felt so clearly aimed at people who were interested in the minutia of this world. Completely uncontextualized within the film itself. And maybe the best example of this is when uh, 
Thufir Hawat <laughs> is uh, is restrained and introduced to the cat with the rat taped to it for him to milk. And I'm sure there are people at DuneCon who know exactly what this device is about and why he must milk it in order to survive. But I didn't, and I don't, and that's the last time we see Thufir Hawat. And... That is just one example of about 10 examples of these micro scenes within this world that I feel like is supposed to tell you something, but doesn't tell you anything. So that scene and that object, I think, represent the many moments where a viewer has to make sense of the senseless. And that was an exercise that this that this film was for me. I like films that challenge me, generally, but this was a different kind of challenge. And so... For that reason, I think uh, I think that box and its contents make for the ultimate rating system for Dune. So on a scale of one to five, cat milking machines, <laughs> we're going to rate Dune. Uh. Look, you're not going to hit David Lynch is not a guy who gets a lot of sympathy, I think. He's, a, he's one of the greats, like... It's almost inarguable. The guy's awesome. But I feel very sympathetic to David Lynch. Uh, I read that this is a film he doesn't even like to talk about. Um, he is he's He was hurt by the experience. He was embarrassed by it to the extent that he Alan Smithied the film, which is a bold choice for a director. And, I mean, the production itself sounded really unpleasant between the weather and the budget and the diarrhea. I, but like, you know how sometimes uh, a band, you will go and see them and they just play so loud that you can't tell if they're good at playing their instruments. This is a film that just bombards you with so much weird and so many strange visuals and its own music cues that it's that it almost obscures whether or not it's good. And I know we've spent a lot of time talking about the many ways that it's bad, but it's so bizarre that I can't totally discount that maybe it's great. (laughs) (laughs) There are a lot of things that I like about it, but like, I think John Hodgman, you were mentioning earlier, like so much money, so much effort, so much talent sunk into this thing. It is spectacular in a way that it does not intend to be. And while fear may be the mind killer, a bad script is most definitely a movie killer. I don't have the heart to give this more than two cat milking machines. This is something that might be fun to just put on at a party as like a <laughs> as a, like a background visual or if you were like going to an art installation or a, or a fashion show, you could see this like projected on a wall of some cool restaurant that's opening to be ironic or whatever. Like this, this feels like a thing that's worth watching, but maybe not in the way that it intends. So I'm, I'm going to give it the confused two cat boxes here as a result. I'm glad I saw it again, but good Lord. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, my introduction to Dune was via the novel and I really recommend that order if you are curious about this read the book first um because i do think that sort of in 
a way not dissimilar from the Lord of the Rings films. It's as much just a realization of a bunch of like weird images you've you have in your head. And like I think that the Lord of the Rings films are more successful as films that stand alone and don't require the novel, but there's, you know, there's good reason to both read the books and watch the movies and and I think that the the same is true here. Um, I got this novel from my grandfather. He, when he passed away, he had a big collection of weird sci-fi books, uh, and neither of my parents really care about sci-fi, so they didn't know what to do with them. But a couple of them came into my possession, and my my paperback of Dune is is his paperback of Dune, and it's something that I just like pulled off the shelf at some point in middle school or high school and, and read and, and really loved. I've, I've, I've read the, read the book probably three times in my life, uh, because of how much I loved it. And the movie I never saw until I was in college, I was doing my study abroad in Dublin and I got a Sunday newspaper of some like God awful, right-wing UK newspaper because they were giving away a free DVD in <laughs> as, as like an inducement to buy the the paper and I I was like hard up for entertainment basically so I bought the bought the newspaper and watched the movie and I I loved it. I love the movie Dune. I I acknowledge <laughs> I acknowledge that it's not a good And movie. how can this be? He is the Kwisatz Haderach. <laughs> the sleeper has awakened. <laughs> it's it's like, I don't think that it's like for everyone. And I don't think that, uh, I, like, I wouldn't ever recommend it in an unqualified way. But for me, Dune is great. I have a, a little Schrodinger-like uncertainty to do uh, with my cat boxes. But I'm going to go ahead and give it four. <laughs> I feel like I feel like I've made my position clear. I love this movie. The movie and the book of Dune are different things. And John Roderick, I I would encourage you to uh, set aside your feud with the Dunies, uh, your historic feud, your vendetta, to use the ancient tongue. Put down the art of Canley, the ancient feuding rules, and maybe take a look at the book Dune because the kinds of questions that you asked about like uniforms and military hierarchy in the movie Dune, which are unanswerable because those uniforms were designed by coked out Italians, <laughs> they will be answered for you in the book Dune. And what is interesting is that this is a, this is a, podcast about war movies and dune is about war and in this movie the 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 battles and the skirmishes are glossed over and are very artless and bad but in the book there is there is really a lot of discussion about how the different sides organize themselves i think that you would find dune the novel apart from being an ecological anti-imperialist fable, to be a better war movie than Dune the movie was. And it might be worth checking out for that reason. But as far as this movie is concerned, I'll, I would just be repeating myself if I said, I just this, this, this massively 
unendingly weird and flawed artifact of culture. I don't even think you can talk of it as a movie because as you pointed out, this this is one sampling of the hours of footage that were collected trying to capture this uncapturable thing. This is one vision, one one window into a, a a kind of like a a, a deranged Winchester house, uh, <laughs> Winchester mystery house, through which you peer through this grimy window and see stuff that you cannot understand. And in this regard, and and it is also a cultural artifact in my in my life, in that I have deep connections to it at, at different times in my life for very different reasons including my my conversation with my best friend, Peter Berg. So to rate it as a movie seems impossible to me because it is a failure as a movie, but it is a, it is a wild accomplishment as a piece of failed culture. So I will give it, as far as I'm concerned, with, with my doffing my Sardaukar body bag hood to you, Ben. <laughs> And your Schrodinger's cat reference. This cat's both alive and dead at the same time. <laughs> it, is, it is both a, a, a five cat in a milking box piece of art yeah. and a one cat in a milking box wow. piece of art. So and there what, aren't is many that, of those. what does that so. mean? A, a 2.5 cat milking box? No, I give, it, I give it one rat taped to a cat. <laughs> <laughs> the only fair <laughs> review i can offer it yeah i mean i don't know if you guys have a spreadsheet where you enter these things you do your own math you know what i mean but i i can't be i can't be i can't be forced into your culture i've got my own way of looking adam at it. does that pass muster with you as the as the keeper of the cataract sure does <laughs> well i'm i'm glad you you humored me by by giving it a rating at all by trying out our culture I appreciate it. Like a body bag. <laughs> Was this body bag used already? <laughs> For my part, I will review the film <laughs> in the magic voice. Oh, I, I, think jo I think John is correct. <laughs> watching this movie was not like watching a movie. You're absolutely right, John Hodgman. It was honestly like reading a... Uh, a serialized comic strip from the 50s. It was like reading Mandrake the Magician by Lee Falk because every single, every minute of this film was a different three-panel comic strip. Someone would enter the stage. They would say, it is the sky of spice of times of things. And then it would, then there would be the second panel where someone would think aloud in a thought balloon, could they be referring to the sky of spice of things? And then the third panel would be someone falling down a hole going, ah, and then it would cut to a completely different person saying, these are the ones of the times of the, of the thing. And then there would be someone with a thought balloon that was like the thing. Could it mean that I am, are we the thing? Are you the thing? And then someone falling down a hole. Ah! And so it was like watching it. It was like reading a, a three panel comic strip over the course of four years. But where like Mandrake the Magician or the Phantom or Mary Worth, 
The comic started many years before you were a child. And so you came in to the, the comic strip already happening. You never knew where the Phantom came from. You never knew where Mandrake the Magician originated. They never told the story again. And you only had three panels and on Sundays, five panels to discern what this like this endless kind of plotless motion through time where people are saying things and having thought balloons and pacing a movie that way was in a way after I'd been watching this movie for two hours, I felt like why, why would you end this movie? What, how, how do you know when you started it? And how could you possibly know when it was over? Let the movie just keep, just keep make. as far as I'm concerned, they should have kept making this movie and we should still, they should still be making it. And for all I know, maybe they have been, I, I wish that it was just, it should have been like a weekly television series as it is. It was just a fashion show for me. I just <laughs> kept being surprised by, by eighties character actors as they appeared on the screen I either admired or recoiled at their clothes and then they were covered in pus and exited stage left and another 80s character actor entered only to be covered with pus again, anew. (laughs) (laughs) But I feel like at the end of this movie, I know less about Dune than I knew going in. (laughs) because I thought at least I knew that Sting was in this movie and there were worms and that Spice was an allegory. But coming out the other side, I'm not even confident about those three things. I can't even, I cannot know how to rate this movie because as, was it you, Ben, or was it Adam that said that this movie belongs uh, in the background of a party? Yeah, that was me. That's exactly what it should be it should be on a giant screen at a rave. And if, yeah, if you were totally. on acid or, or MDMA at a rave and they were spraying bubbles on you and you were in, um, you were in <laughs> Ibiza Perfect. and it was 1989 <laughs> and you were like, I don't even know whether I'm a boy or a girl anymore. Woo. And this was up on the giant screen, just going like, warp, 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 warp. <laughs> it would be hot and the, and and there's no sex in this movie for, as there's not there's not 10% of the sex that could have been in this movie but there's a kind of there's a sex there's a sexuality that comes from seeing people encased in PVC and knowing that their genitals are so sweaty there's a kind of Brit Hume style of yeah. of sex in here <laughs> You, you, you cannot watch this movie without imagining all of these actors peeling those clothes off at the end of the day and just like their underpants just soaked through. It'd be great to watch during a rave. I'm going to give it one, one cat with a rat taped to it in a box, a milking cat, and one cup of cat milk. <laughs> yeah wow you want to be careful walking around with that box well wow. don't want to tip over that glass this was such a dry conversation i didn't expect the heavens to open up and cat milk to rain down on us in the in the final moments i didn't know that you could you could add on an extra beverage like a little sidecar so 
<laughs> mine is mine is one one rat taped to a cat plus a side of that box that had a rodent in it that Raban the Beast crushed and then drank oh, the yeah. blood out. <laughs> rodent box. Just as a little chaser. Yeah. You thought that uh, Jabba the Hutt invented that, but the Beast Raban did. That was Paul Smith, by the way, that that actor, Paul Smith, who also played Bluto in Robert Altman's Popeye. Oh, another, yeah. another LSD movie. <laughs> <laughs> another great party film. Uh, final segment on Friendly Fire is the selection of a guy. Ben, who's your guy? There are a couple of little boys among the Fremen that have little, little like child-sized still suits. Which, uh, <laughs> if if these are repurposed Mig Mig fighter costumes, uh, the fact that they could find those in like a, an eight-year-old size is amazing <laughs> to me. But. Uh, in the final fight scene, you see one of them there, and he's holding a pug. I think it's that same pug, and I love that that kid like found the pug from the beginning of the movie. <laughs> so that little kid is my guy. You know, I, I'm I, I'm so glad you mentioned him because I noticed those kids too, and and I think if there's only one child actor. There's only one photo of a child in the cast list on IMDb, and that's Danny Corkill, and he played a character named Orlop. I think that character is Orlop. <laughs> Good old Orlop. This wouldn't have been the same movie without Orlop and his yeah. and his friend. Uh, Adam, who's your guy? Uh, it's Florman Garmin Schnart, <laughs> obviously. No. In a film where it seems like something in every scene looks out of place, like that pug, uh, my guy's going to be Duncan Idaho, who looks like he's in another movie. He looks so modern <laughs> and out of place. When he shows up on screen, I'm, I'm shocked by him, just because he looks like he should be elsewhere. Uh, also, just like that Paul Atreides loves him is enough for me. And that's all you need to know to feel anything when he dies. Like that is that those are the closest two points in character development. Like that's if you can just make someone loved and then kill him, it's all you need to do to make someone feel anything. And that worked for me. I was sad when he died. So Duncan Idaho is my guy. Uh, Roderick, you got a guy? My guy is Lady Jessica. Lady Jessica as far as I could discern from having the plot explained to me in voiceovers and thought balloons, Lady Jessica was <laughs> not supposed to have a boy, but she went ahead and had one anyway against the rules. The boy became the Hadrak Shmarunarn. She had, she uh, was very, she's a serious lady. She had four different, Super cool Nicolas Cage, my, ha my hair is a bird, your argument is invalid hairstyles. Always looked like super dynamite in them. It's very hard, I think, in science fiction because you want to give the women super cool hairstyles that no one's ever seen before, but you also want them to look cool. So like Princess Leia, super cool, iconic hairstyle. Um, and you don't think like, how is it possible that you're going to have another new cool sort of French braid on top of French braid that she has, but she pulls it off. Then 
It turns out that she has studied to be a priestess under head mean priestess lady, Mother Ramalama Ding Dong. And she knows all about the priestesses. And then she tra- after after Sean Young comes in and becomes like uh, Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain, we get Lady Jessica then transitions into full-on shaved head priestess lady. And then I, get, I think gets like an ultra bloody nose when he drinks the, uh, drinks the worm water and has a daughter who is like a super wizardess. And then she just dies. She dies. I think she dies. Does she die? She just evaporates or is she in the final scene? I don't know. None of it really held together, but she was incredible. I couldn't stop. I couldn't figure out whether I wanted her to be my mom or my girlfriend. And I think that was intentional. And so Lady Jessica is my guy. Hodgman, do you have a guy? I got so many guys in this movie. I mean, it's just full of my guys. But I'm gonna give you know I'm gonna give I'm gonna give my guy to Freddie Jones through for Howlout himself because Aldo Ray was supposed to play that part and was cast, but showed up in Mexico so debilitated by alcoholism that he couldn't do it. And veteran English character actor Freddie Jones jumped in. He made those eyebrows his own. He does so many weird things in that movie. Like when he bangs his fist on Paul's shoulder and as congratulations. (laughs) Just the image of him staring into that blank screen going five, five square, nine, two, five, two, five feet report. Like this guy, this guy gave some thought to what a mentat is both the both the aid that having a a, a, a a superhuman brain would be to your life and to your duke and how it would also destroy you as a human being and haunt you so i'm going to give it to my friend Thufer himself yes. freddie jones yes. that's my guy good guy nicely good guy. done wow well another friendly fire pork chap app in the books john hodgman thank you so much for joining us um thank you for having me thanks for letting me be on this podcast which i listen to and enjoy i i can't imagine that anyone listening doesn't know about judge john hodgman but if if you don't you really need to get yourself involved with judge john hodgman it's it's truly one of my favorite podcasts appointment listening for me every week do you have like a, a stock description of the show, John, so I don't do a bad job? <laughs> uh, it's like a, it's like a Judge Judy, except uh, it's a podcast. I am the I am not a real judge. I'm a fake judge, and litigants call in uh, with their real life disputes that are either mundane, philosophical, or uh, or or fam- familial, pretty much. And almost none of them piss on your leg, right? Almost none of them piss on my leg. You know what? <laughs> I'm starting to think that might be Judge Judy's problem. Maybe she's got a piss-attracting leg. <laughs> I don't know. I also want to point out uh, that I the paperback edition of my latest book, Medallion Status, is coming out in October. I don't know when you were thinking of releasing this particular episode. Uh, this will come out right at the beginning of October, I think. Oh, perfect. It's like we planned it. It's like it was planned. October 13th, Medallion Status 
True stories from secret rooms, the last stories from the very last days of the time when I would fly on an airplane, when any of us would, uh, <laughs> but when I would be flown on an airplane to talk to Peter Berg or whatever. Uh, please, uh, if you are if you've not checked it out, please check it out from your library or wherever books are sold. Medallion status. Can't recommend it Thank highly enough. Much. Thank you very much. Well, uh, that uh, just about does it for today. So for John Roderick, Adam Pranica, and John Hodgman, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Long live the fighters! That was a <laughs> rallying cry that I felt could have used some punch-up. <laughs> The mystery of life isn't a problem to solve, but a reality to experience. And Friendly Fire's Pork Shop Feed is a maximum fun podcast. Hosted by Ben Harrison, Adam Pranica, and John Roderick. With special guest today of John Hodgman. Thank you for joining us. This show is produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music, and our podcast art is by Nick Dittmer. Thank you for supporting Friendly Fire. If you have a friend who doesn't donate to MaximumFun.org slash join, let them know so that they can listen to all of our Pork Chop episodes. Don't forget you can now follow us on Twitter and Instagram under the handle FriendlyFireRSS. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next month with another Pork Chop episode. Fun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.